our discipleship seminar today is Understanding Mormonism. How many of you would say, like, I know very little at all about Mormonism? I'm here because I know next to nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, a few of you. How many of you would say you've had, like, really significant exposure? Like, you have a neighbor, a coworker, a friend yeah. in Germany? No, okay. In the Army. In the Army, okay. Yeah. And I'm assuming everyone else is somewhere in between. <laughs> right? You've heard a few things. You've seen the temple and driving through D.C. or something like that. You just had questions. Well, um, hopefully... Uh, uh, this will be enlightening for you. Uh, I'm actually going to go ahead and pray before we get started, and we'll go from there. Lord God, it is good to gather here tonight, Lord, and typically, you know, we're teaching your word, we're doing something different tonight, but Lord, as we as we look at a different religion, Lord, I pray that it would shine the, the light of Christ, um, Lord, that it would show us, Lord, uh, and by comparison, Lord, how wondrous your truth is, how good your gospel is. So Lord, help us to understand, Lord, a people group that we do. Uh, want to love, but we also want to reach with the true gospel of Christ. God, and I just pray you to let this time be fruitful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So, uh, we do have a lot of content to go through tonight, and so I am going to break it in half. We will have a, a break right in the middle, like a five-minute stretch, refresh, use the bathroom kind of break. Uh, because I like to get on a roll, I'm going to try to like have certain specific times I say like, hey, here's a good time to ask a question, but... Um, so uh, if you do have questions, please try to write them down or hold them, and we'll, we'll get to them in a little bit. So with that said, uh, why study Mormonism, right? So uh, many of you have seen, as I mentioned this morning, and you've driven by, there is a Mormon ward building uh, right over there in New Freedom on that, please, someone tell me what that road is on the way to, Const- oh, wait, no, no, no. Camel, Camel Road. Camel Road, yeah, and so... Uh, so it's a ward building. It's not specifically called a, a church building. You could probably call it that, but they have wards and stakes and so forth. So it's just the way they, the language they use. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a special language uh, to describe it. But yeah, so the, uh, just I, I remember seeing that built and, and driving by. And I grew up in Missouri. There's actually a pretty big um, Mormon presence in Missouri. We'll talk about the history later on and. And you'll, you'll get a little bit of that. And so I grew up with friends who were Mormon. There was a Mormon war building in my neighborhood. There still is growing up. Um, there is a temple in, Saint, in the St. Louis area. So like I was, I, I had several interactions with it. And, um, and so as I was driving by and I saw that, and I said, you know what? We're going to start seeing more missionaries knock on people's door in our congregation. And I feel like I probably need to get ahead of this, <laughs> you know. And, ask, and, and, and so can I ask, how, have any of you had a Mormon knock on your door in the past year even? No. A few, yeah, I I have. I saw one at the, uh, I saw one at the the YMCA. Well, you may. There is definitely I've seen more missionary activity, and even asked the people who came to my door, is that you know, are you guys related to that church or the, the building up there? And they said yes. So, yeah. So I think that if nothing else, this is an opportunity for engagement. Um, this is a group that you know that will come, that may or will come to your door, you know, and and seeking to to teach you something. So there's definitely an opportunity for engagement. Um, so I think there's also, you know, an, an opportunity to say like, hey, this is a group that has the name Jesus Christ in their, in the title of their church. You know, they call themselves Christian, you know, and so, but how are we to think about that? Because there's a lot of doctrinal distinctives that they have. So we're going to talk about the differences between Mormons and evangelical Protestants. And I think to, in some sense to answer the question, is the Mormon my brother? Because they might answer that question differently than we would. So, uh, we'll, we'll, so we're going to take a look at some history some doctrine, 
some assessments, and then we'll talk about some, some, some things that keep in mind as we're trying to reach out to them. But I did, I did want to start with um, things that I admire about Mormons. When I was in high school, we took a class, I had my Sunday school class, and we had a class on Roman Catholicism, and, he, and I really appreciated that he taught. He said, well, here's ten things I appreciate about the Roman Catholic Church. Because when you're talking about a different group, and I really like that, and it made me think, like, if you're going to talk about a group, you want to be fair, you know, you want to fairly represent someone else's beliefs um, as you're interacting with them. And I think it's also to say, like, hey, I, I want to I come and not just say, like, this is a Mormon bashing seminar, you know. So I'm going to say, here, here's, here's a few things that I admire. This is my list. Uh, number one is these are people that are definitely committed to their beliefs. Uh, largely, I mean, they are dedicated. Every, every religious group has people who are lapsed, who are just kind of, you know, transitory in their faith. They're not really connected. But, um, but Mormons seem to be very, very dedicated. I mean, when a large percentage of their population of their young men and women go on two-year missions all over the world, and that's like a, an, almost an expected thing. When they tithe as part of their, not like as a, an optional thing, but like 10% of their income, you know, uh, yeah, they're definitely dedicated. They read their scriptures and they believe them, right? So they're committed to their beliefs. They're very, number two, they're very family-centered, right? I mean, they, it's, if you know, there's oftentimes very, very big families. Um, there's theology behind that that really, you know, girds some of that. And polygamy questions aside, <laughs> you know, I think that they, they, they care deeply about, family, and they tend to be for, um, against a lot of the same things that we are against as it relates to the family. Three, they're education-focused. Um, they definitely appeal to educated people. I mean, they built, BYU is a massive school. Um, they do things like seminary and institute programs. Like, it's a before-school, everyday learning program for high school and college, like going through their books, going through their scriptures. So they're definitely dedicated in education. Number four is their architecture and art. Now, I love that we meet in a YMCA. I'm not going to lie. You know, I love there's a lot of good there. But um, how many of you have driven through D.C. and you've seen that temple and you're like, I'm not sure that is, but like, that's a sight to behold, right? Like, just, I think you can honestly say like, hey, that's a beautiful building. You can drive through, a, you know, uh, you can go to, um, to Rome and you can see the basilica and say, there's a lot of really bad things that went behind that building being built, you know, but it's beautiful as, 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 an, as a work of architecture. And so... Yeah, I think they pay attention to aesthetics, and personally, I appreciate that. Number five, um, I say they're more conservative politically, and I'm going to say, you know what, this is my list, so I get to say what I want. I'm more conservative, and I tend to agree with them on certain things as far as that goes, so we could stand together arm-in-arm against LGBTQ things, divorce, fornication, abortion, like certain just like political things. I can say, hey, you know what, we, we can stand arm-in-arm if we disagree on other things, at least on some of those things. They have a moral lifestyle. I mean, would you rather have an atheist, a Wiccan, or a Mormon living next door to you? I mean, they're you know they're known for their clean living. You know, for they're not they're probably not going to be raging alcoholics. You know, they're going to be good neighbors. They're going to be kind. You know, when the Mormons came to my door and told them like, "Hey, I'm a pastor," da, 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 they're like, "Well, hey, do you want us to, you know, rake your yard or do any yard work?" And I'm, I almost said yes. <laughs> you know, like you know, you can pick up the dog poop if you want. <laughs> but. Um, very service-oriented, very kind. Um, and there are definitely religious groups that are argumentative, right? I mean, if you meet a Scientologist, you're going to probably get an argument, if you can find one. But, but a Mormon, it's, it's, it's going to be rare. Just, they don't seem to be very argumentative people, by and large. And that, that kind of relates to the, the, the seventh one. They're, they're, they're known for their kindness. They're some of the nicest people you'll meet. And I think most of you would probably say the same thing. They're not argumentative or aggressive, generally speaking. So... You could say more, you could say less. That's just my list. That's just my, you know, you could say something different. But 
let's talk about as we let's move on. Let's talk about where where Mormonism comes from because I, I and I like history, so maybe if nothing else, this is going to be you know enlightening to you. Um, so let me read this quote from a book by Fawn Brady. Uh, Brody, I mean, no man knows my history, the life of Joseph Smith. You know, if you're going to read a biography on on the founder of Mormonism, this is it's from the 1970s, but it's still probably the best or one of the best ones. She says, one cannot understand the story of Mormonism's founder without knowing something of Vermont at the turn of the 19th century. Joseph Smith was not a mutation. He was uh, as much a product of New England as Jonathan Edwards. Much about him can be explained um, only by the sterile soil, the, the, the magic of midwives and scryers, the sober, the sober discipline of the schoolmasters. The quote basically says, like, we're going to talk about Joseph Smith, and we've got to understand that um, he came out of his context as we learn uh, things about him. So we're going to talk a little bit about what was New England in the 19th century. Uh, that's the early 1800s. What, what was it like? Because this is the time period that Mormonism arose. So what's going on in American history in the 19th century? Well, there was a series of awakenings, new religious movements, spiritual and emotional. We had the Second Great Awakening uh, from 1790 to 1840. So uh, this was pretty much all during the the majority of of Joseph Smith's life was this long period of what's called the Second Great Awakening. Uh, This this is kind of a picture of what it looked like. There were circuit riders, people who would ride around and, and, and preach at revival tent meetings. Um, this led to a lot of social uh, reforms, such as the temperance movement. Um, the first, you may have heard of the, the First Great Awakening. That's a little bit older. That actually is more of a Calvinistic flair with people like George Whitfield and, and uh, Jonathan Edwards. This has a little bit more of an Arminian feel, if those, or theology, if that means anything to you. But the Second uh, Great Awakening is marked by a, a rejection of the enlightenment of rationalistic influences in the church, so it, it definitely is focused a lot more on experience, right? And there was a little bit of a mixed results, right? So for one thing, at this time, um, a college-trained preacher was exceedingly rare, especially in the Appalachian portion and certain ports of, of New York, um, and charismatic personalities were preferred. So you have a guy like Charles Finney, who's one of the biggest names of the Second Great Awakening, and if you ever read anything on him, he's, he's a little different. Um, the reason why we have uh, like altar calls that actually came out of the Second Great Awakening. He had something called an anxious bench, you know. So like if, I, if I'm if I'm preaching and you know the, the spirit moves, you you come to the bench and do work. Like there there was things like that that, that actually came out of this movement. So like anything, there was good and bad that came out of it. But there was a lot of, of a, a revivalistic mood going on during Joseph Smith's formative, formative years. New movements arose. Adventism, like you, you've heard of the Seventh Day Seventh Day Adventists. I'm not going to go into that, but they, they came up during this time period. Uh, so this belief in the imminent return of Christ and need to prepare society for it. But, but more than that, Christians have always been wanting to prepare for the return of Christ. But th- this came with a lot of like specific predictions about Christ is going to come back on this date. You know, and of course, it doesn't come about. But um, Holiness movements, the, West, the Wesleyan teaching. Uh, John Wesley taught this idea of entire sanctification, that Christians can actually reach a point of really almost like the sinlessness here on earth now. Uh, it's a second work of grace that removes all sin from believers. There were restorationist groups. There was this idea that the church needed to be restored, to go back to more primitive, earlier versions of Christianity um, that were considered pure. That really plays a lot into Mormonism. Uh, dispensationalism actually also arose during this time period and gained a lot of popularity as well. 
So with this, there was a lot of fragmenting of established religious groups, right? So you had Baptists, you had Methodists, you had Presbyterians. Well, a lot of those groups ended up breaking up into smaller subgroups, right? So there ended up being like the Methodist church kind of split in four different ways. Baptists, there was Reformed Baptists, something called Hardshell Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Seventh-day Baptists, foot washers. I mean, people broke up into like all their little subgroups, like different movements, right? Also important because there, there begins to be a lot of considered fragmenting in the church because there's so many different flavors of it, right? So Palmyra, New York, where Joseph Smith, um, the, uh, the, the founder of Mormonism, where he was kind of, he wasn't born, but where he kind of lived, was considered the burned over district. What that means is this circuit riders came through and there's so many different revivals, so many different, you know, religions that came through, so many different church movements that kind of came and went that basically the people were just burned out, right? So much enthusiastic and you know, enthusiasm about religion was just like, you know what? I'm kind of done. <laughs> you know, people, you know, and honestly, maybe New York, New England is, hasn't really ever recovered from that. There was just this like, you know, we're, we're kind of, we've gone through enough. We have no more enthusiasm for religion. Um, they were kind of raw and burned out. Something else that was interesting about this time period, though, in, in American history, was there was a lot of, ma- there was a mag- magical and superstitious worldview, you know, kind of um, folk religion, or, or there was, you know, different things that people would do. So much more, they were, they were much more open to superstition and, and folk religious practices as a normal part of life. So things like magic stones, right, the idea of like, like someone might carry like a, a, a lucky rabbit's foot and you're like, oh, that's a nice keychain piece. But you'd see it, like they might actually believe like this will bring me luck, you know. Or uh, dowsing rods. You know what a, what a dowsing rod is? You have to go find a well or something or something buried in the ground. You have a stick that has one point and two branches and you hold it like this and kind of when it points down, it's like, oh, there's something under there. You know, <laughs> you know I don't know, maybe water, maybe a well, maybe gold, maybe something under there, right? Seer stones, buried treasure in the earth that you can find. You can keep in mind, America is still young as a nation at this point, and we're still exploring the land, right? Uh, spirits. I heard this this uh, this anecdote as I was reading. If a man was walking down the street, for example, and he said, "The devil appeared to me on the road in a red cape," if, if that happened to you, you'd be like, "You really shouldn't drink this early in the morning." You know, you'd probably say, "Like, are you okay?" But at this time, you know, the first response might be something like. Well, what did he say? You like, I know that sounds silly, but like there might be there was just a lot more openness to like things that were you know maybe superstitious or strange or, or more openness to things like that. Um, all of this played into that, that's setting the stage for when you, when we start talking about who Joseph Smith was and and the kind of religion that came from him. Just recognize like he grew up in this time period. These you know we all have a context, right? So let's talk about Joseph Smith, right? So he was born. December 23rd, 1805, and he died June 27th, 1844. I believe that at the, that's the age of 38. So he has a religious background in Vermont, but he moved to Palmyra, New York in 1816. He, he had, um, his family was trying to escape poverty, right, and doing farming and things like that. But they began, his family is, is kind of well known now that they began to do something called money digging, right? It's a belief that there was treasure that was hidden in the earth and that it could be found through divination or magical means. Right? This was actually something that was, like I said, it's part of the superstitious mindset of the time. Not, certainly not everyone practiced this, but um, it was certainly something that, uh, that he engaged in, he and his family. 
right? So you, you see already there, there there's kind of a, there oftentimes was a blending of spirituality and materialism, right? Like there's spiritual beliefs, I can use these spiritual techniques because I want to get rich with physical material things. So Joseph Smith, from all accounts, was a very charismatic personality, right? And he was enthralled with these practices. Um, he developed a reputation for it, both for profit and for trouble. So there was actually people like this um, who would almost make a living being like, okay, you know, just like you go to this person for, you know, old-time healing techniques, it's like you go to this person to help you find things. Like, oh, I lost this thing in, in the field, and it's buried in the ground, and they can use a dowsing rod or a seer stone or some other magical means to help me find it. Right? So, um, so there were people like Joseph who could eke out a living being hired to find treasures using supernatural means like that. Actually, in 1826, he was tried for something called disorderly conduct since he was using a seer stone to find his hidden treasure in the earth. Interestingly, one year later, Joseph Smith claimed to have found golden plates hidden in the earth being directed by an angel to their location, and that would ultimately become the Book of Mormon. So Joseph Smith is this young man who his family is involved in, in, in treasure hunting and, and finding gold in the earth and so forth. And he begins to start saying, developing a story, that he had a vision uh, of an angel telling him to find these golden plates in the earth. Now there's all different kinds of accounts of how this happened. Um, and, and they've kind of changed over the years, but I'm going to give the official account as best that I can. So there's something called the first vision, which is very, very important to Mormon history and actually a lot of their theology as well. So, uh, as the story is told, in 1820, while he was in Rochester, New York, he's 14 years old, and uh, Joseph Smith is praying in a grove. Because, of all, remember, the burned-over district, there's so many different churches, there's so much stuff going on, and he says, as a 14-year-old boy, he is praying, Lord, what church do I go to? Which one is the right one? Because there's so many. Would you, would you please lead me to the right church? And, he, and the story goes that two shining personages which are implied to be the father and the son, appear bodily to him and said that he should join none of them. Right? And here's a quote uh, from the Joseph Smith papers. For, for This is his, his account of it. He says, They told me that all religious denominations were believing incorrect doctrines and that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom. And I was expressly commanded to not go after them, at the same time receiving a promise that the fullness of the gospel should at some future time be made known to me. So he's trying to seek out. He says, God, which church is the right one? And God appears to him and says, they're all wrong. They're all an abomination. They're all false doctrines. I'm going to show you the true church. So that, that, that's the story goes when he was 14. Uh, there was several different visions along the way, but I'm going to go to the second major one, which is sometimes called the second vision. It happens in 1823. Um, he's somewhere around 18 or 19 around this time. At this point, September of 1823, uh, he's praying in his room and the angel Moroni appears to him and says God has work for him to do. That there, are, there is a book deposited in the earth in a stone box and, written, and, and on it are written golden plates. Sorry, and there are golden plates within it on which text is written. And this is giving the history and the origin of the former inhabitants of America. It's an ancient history of the inhabitants of the American continent. And this book is supposed to contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel as delivered by the Savior Jesus to these ancient people. So there's going to be these golden plates, and it's going to be and it's a history text telling of 
the ancient peoples of America. It is written in a different language. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so there's, there are implements to help the translation of this book, something called the Urim and the Thummim. So there's a breastplate and the Urim and the Thummim. I'll show, I think I have pictures of that later on. These are seers which to be used to translate the book. So he was told that at this time, so this is 1823, uh, that, he, that this is, he tells him about the plates, but he is not yet allowed to retrieve them. So about every year he, began, he would continue to have these visions until the angel finally says in 1827 that he is now able, he's allowed to retrieve the plates. So uh, the angel tells him where he can go. He digs them up. He finds in a stone box these golden plates. And, he, uh, and in, in 1827 is when he finds them. Translation of this book takes place between 1828 and 1829. And the Book of Mormon is first published in 1830. And we'll talk more specifically about the Book of Mormon in just a moment. That's just like a, a, just a, a basic of what the, of the story is of how Joseph Smith... This man uh, uh, says that you know, the, the Mormon church really kind of came into being, that an angel appeared to him, told him that the churches currently around are false, that the church actually needs to be restored on earth. The true gospel, the true church needs to be restored, and he's going to direct him to where he can find plates. He's going to use him to restore the church. So let me give a quick assessment uh, of Joseph Smith and these visions, because these two things are very, very important. Mormonism rises and falls on the trustworthiness of Joseph Smith. Ready? Um, so, for example, this is a quote from LDS President, Latter-day Saint, LDS, President Gordon Hinckley. Um, he says, We declare without equivocation that God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in person to the boy Joseph Smith. Our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this whole work is a fraud. That's pretty bold. Like their LDS president says, hey, if, if, this, if this vision really happened, if God really appeared, the Father and the Son to Joseph Smith, like, it, then, 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 then everything he says really kind of lines up. If not, then it's their fraud. By the way, there's actually several statements that they make about like that. They're, they're really kind of bold. Um, so yeah, they believe that the true faith um, rests you know, in the trustworthiness of Joseph Smith. So Mormons tend to believe that, that the true faith that the true, the true Christianity was lost after the time of the apostles. Um, that, G, that, that after Jesus and, and, the last, and the last apostle died, um, that Christianity began to change, right? That, that, that perhaps even books of the Bible began to be removed or, or, or the text of Scripture began to be changed, that the, the, the creeds that began to be formed, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene, and so forth, began to alter and change uh, the true Christian faith, that, that Greek philosophy was brought in and that changed everything and so they call this something like the great apostasy that at some point the church that came out after the apostles was so dramatically changed that many plain and precious truths uh, were, were lost and so joseph smith is, is considered to be the prophet of the restoration that, that his that god specifically chose him to restore the true church so he, does not, he didn't see himself, and the church does not see him as a new movement, but as like restoring a very old movement, which, by the way, there's actually a lot of um, comparisons to this in, in, in Islam, which is really interesting. You have a prophet in Islam, Muhammad, who says Christianity has gotten things wrong, the Jews have gotten things wrong about God, you know, and now we have a new prophet who has additional revelations which are going to correct what the Jews and Christians have corrupted. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we're going to go back, so... 
it's really interesting, some of the uh, comparisons there. But yeah, they say if Joseph Smith lied about the first vision or about the plates, then Mormonism is a fraud. I have two other quotes like that. Another apostle says, The first vision of 1820 is of first importance to the history of Joseph Smith. Upon its reality rests the truth and value of his subsequent work. Mormonism really rises and falls on Joseph Smith. Was he a true prophet of God? Did God really appear to him? Right? Did this vision, these visions we talked about, did they actually occur? Were there actually golden plates? Like, Mormons believe all of these things have to be true. And if they are true, I mean, if Joseph Smith is true, then, then everything he said is true as well. And Christian, we, we, we really only look to like, well, Jesus Christ, you know, the Apostle Paul, like the people who wrote scripture. But we don't talk about like some of our people in church history like Augustine or Athanasius or Martin Luther. Like we know they were flawed people. We know they could have got things wrong, but we, we don't look at them the way they look at Joseph Smith. So Mormonism rises and falls on Joseph Smith. If he's telling the truth, then the LDS religion is true in the restoration of the true gospel of the church. But if he was deliberately lying, or if he was deceived, or if he was delusional, or any mixture of, thereof, then Mormonism as a whole must be discarded as fiction. So I, I say all that just, you know, like Mormons hold Joseph Smith in exceedingly high regard. There's some of their hymns even sing to him, praise be the man. I mean, they, there's a lot of, if I could draw an analogy, maybe, it's not perfect, but like, you know, how, um, sometimes how Catholics think about Mary. Like there's, there's like this a really, really, really high regard that, that, that borders on worship. Um, yeah, I'm going to pause there for just a moment. I'm going to talk about the Book of Mormon. We'll go with some other history. But any questions about the things that I've covered real quick? Yeah. So, yeah, so the Mormon church is, um, is called, its official name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So LDS is Latter-day Saints. I, I actually, yeah, they, they, they used to be known by Mormons because their book is the Book of Mormon, um, which is a prophet who actually wrote all that. They say is a prophet who wrote all that, all that book. So they kind of went by that moniker. They're Mormons. In the, in the, the past 10 years, their apostle, their, their president of the, of the LDS church said, hey, we really need to be known not by Mormons, but by the name Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it's kind of interchangeable. Sometimes Christians say I'm a Christian. Sometimes they say I'm a Christ follower. Some, you know, like, I don't know. But uh, uh, we'll get there. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me move to that because it, it is it is pretty interesting. So the Book of Mormon, right? Once again, this is another one of those like quotes from uh, Ezra Taft Benson, uh, one of the uh, Mormon presidents. It says, "Just as the arch crumbles if the keystone is removed, so does all the church stand or fall with the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon." If it can be discredited, the prophet Joseph Smith goes with it. Once again, bold statements. And I think that has a lot to do with their founder, Joseph Smith, made a lot of bold statements. And sometimes you'll have somebody who just says something so boldly that people believe it just because it's said with such gusto. You ever found that? <laughs> a charismatic personality? You know, say if you're going to lie, lie big. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so I'd say like, Mormons put a lot of stock, like, if this book is, is true, you know, like, this is the keystone of our religion. If this is proven to be a fraud, then everything is a fraud. So let's talk a little bit about the golden plates, okay? That is not an actual picture of the golden plates. That's a facsimile, or, not, or that's a, not a facsimile, a, uh, a fabrication. fabrication. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. 
So the idea was, um, that, so when we say golden plates, I'm not talking about like dinner plates, okay? We're not talking about, you know, it's something that was relatively, you know, small, but they were made of gold. There were sheets. They were bound together with a ring, with a series of rings, comparative like that is how he describes it. Uh, and they were found in a metal box, and it's in, inscribed with something called Reformed Egyptian, right? Uh, he was asked by one of his early backers, one of his early financiers, an early member of the church to say, well, what does this look like? What does this, you know, uh, look like? And so this is uh, Joseph Smith saying, like, this is what reformed Egyptian looks like. He wrote that down. We still have that sheet of paper. But the Book of Mormon is purported to be a record of, of America's ancient inhabitants. It was written on plates of gold. It was buried in a stone box on an area called the Hill Camorra, uh, about a mile from Joseph Smith's home. That's where he says that he found them. Joseph Smith took the plates home, by the way, somehow, because you have a lot of metal plates like that, and it was big, and it, like this could have been exceedingly heavy. And that's actually a, a, a question is like, if this really happened, how did he get these plates home? Um, and he kept them hidden. It's actually a pretty point. Like, like the idea that like these, you, anyone could just go and find these and take a look at these is kind of a misnomer. There's lots of fascinating stories about the translation of the Book of Mormon. One of them is that uh, when Joseph Smith began translating the, uh, the Book of Mormon, um, the, fir- he had, he, what, the way he would do it is he had somebody else sitting across from him, in this case a guy named Martin Harris, and uh, they were translating together. Martin Harris wanted to borrow the first 116 pages of this document, right? And then he lost it. And then Joseph Smith's like, ah, what am I going to do? You know, these pages, these, this material is lost. So when Smith started again, so I think that there's actually some belief that maybe his wife, Martin Harris's wife or somebody else who thought it was a forgery actually took it and was thinking like, this is going to prove that he's, it's a forgery or it's a fake. Because they said, well, if you're translating it, you can just reproduce it. Right. Well, if he was making it up, he couldn't reproduce it. Interestingly, those pages are considered lost. They, they were never found. They're presumed destroyed. But when Smith started translating again, he did not retranslate that material. So we never have that. But it was replaced with another account of the same material. So, like I said, that, that leads us to believe if Joseph was genuinely translating a text, if you were translating, Pastor Tim, you know, the Gospel of Matthew, and you put in, like, a lot of work doing it, and we lost it, you'd be like, oh, man, that's frustrating, but I can go back and do that work again, you know, and it won't look too different, right? But the fact that he couldn't do that suggests this may have been out of his own imagination and attempts to recreate it. Would have, people have noticed, like, hey, this sounds different when we were, you know, when we, when we listened to this last time. This sounds different. So how did Joseph Smith translate, so to speak, the Book of Mormon? So these are actual pictures of, or paintings of uh, what people in the popular imagination of Mormons for a long time thought that, that, that the, uh, the translation procedure looked like, right? That Joseph Smith sat at a table with these golden plates, you know, and he translated them by the power of God. And what would, you see this picture over here, uh, there's a picture of the Thummim, right, this Way over here, he had, there was this breastplate and this attachment with these stones that were like basically almost like glasses with clear stones in them, and it was supposed to assist him, and and into and he would just basically like recite what the Book of Mormon, what he was translating, and he would have a secretary um, write down, you know, as he's speaking, he would have somebody else actually do the writing. Initially, uh, it was his wife Emma Smith who was involved in this, but eventually, then it was Martin Harris, the guy who lost 
116 pages, and eventually another man named Oliver Cowdery. Those guys are important later on. But the writing took place largely in the spring of 1829 uh, over a period of three months. So it came out really quickly after the initial 116 pages were lost. So that's how Mormons believed for a long time that it was translated. There were plates on a table, often in an open view, that Joseph Smith was equipped with the urm and thummim, and he was translating by the power of God, recorded by a secretary, and there was a sheet separating them, right? So there was this, and a lot of LDS or, or Mormon artwork, this is how it was, it, was, it was thought to be. But that's not actually how it actually happened. Um, this is actually a closer look. This is actually how... Uh, it was done. Artwork now has, has been changed to reflect this as it kind of came out. The, what happened was is Smith translated, uh, did his translation work um, with a seer stone placed in the hat and his, and his face put up in the hat. It was the same seer stone that he used for, for gold digging, for money digging. And what he would do is he would, he would, it said that he would put the stone, his seer stone, in the hat, and he'd stick his face in the hat, and what, what would happen is that, that almost like a vision of like parchment would show up, and then like a reformed Egyptian word would appear, and then like either on top of it or underneath it would be the English translation. He would say that to the secretary, the secretary would repeat it, and then he'd move on. And most of the time, we actually, and then we have testimony from people who, who witnessed this who said, most of the time, the plates weren't even in the room. They were hidden out in the woods. That eventually Joseph didn't use the herb and thummim at all, but the plates were, un- were, were not uncovered. They weren't seen. They weren't even in the woods when this, was, when, the, this was taken, when this was taking place. By the way, that is the actual seer stone used by Joseph Smith. So uh, the onset of the Internet was not helpful, I think, to the LDS church. <laughs> because, and this, this is true of other issues like polygamy and other things, where like, before there was such big, ac- such free access to the history of the church and documents and so forth, then, then the church could kind of control the narrative, right, and say this is the history, this is how it happened, and everything else. And okay, and, and it's, this has happened with a lot of different religions and governments and organizations. But as as knowledge has, be, has become known, as as ancient, you know, as as older uh, testimonies have been like found on the internet, like church members can go and like see this stuff. So they've had to come out and say, yes, this is how it actually happened, and here's a picture of the stone that he used, both for money digging eventually, and then to translate the Book of Mormon. Right. So interestingly, uh, if you, this is a Book of Mormon, and in the beginning there is um, something. There's testimonies, right? The testimony of the three witnesses and the testimony of the eight witnesses, right? What these, what the three witnesses, these are, uh, uh, sorry, these are testimonies uh, where they're saying, hey, we have evidence that the, that the Book of Mormon is true, that the plates were actually there, we witnessed these things, which on, on first glance is like, well, I mean, if there's, there's people who are saying we, we, we saw the plates and we handled them and we were part of this, like that's actually pretty strong evidence, right? We saw this, it's eyewitness testimony. So there, these are the three witnesses, Oliver Cowdery and, and uh, Martin Harris on the end there. They were involved in the translation process. David Whitmer was important as well, right? They claimed to have seen the plates, right? An angel of God came down from heaven and showed them the engravings on the plates. Uh, there's also the testimony of the eight witnesses. Um, are, are, your names on, are there names on the handout there? Yeah. I don't want to read them, <laughs> Okay. And this is the and they they testify that Joseph showed them the plates they that they handled them and their hands hefted the weight of them and they saw the engravings. But there actually becomes a question 
Because um, that's, well, that that sounds pretty solid. They testified, they, they, they saw them, they hefted them, all that. So the plates are real, it must be true. But there's actually a question, did Joseph have plates at all? Joseph actually went to great pains to make sure no one ever saw these plates. Apparently, if anyone looked on them, they would perish. And this is um, from the, jo- the, the writings of Joseph Smith in The Pearl of Great Price. It's one of their scriptures. He says, I should not show them the plates to any person, neither the breastplate with the urim and thummim, only to those who I should be commanded to show them. If I did, I should be destroyed. So that was his story. If anyone actually saw the plates without God's permission, then he would be destroyed. So whenever he showed them to anyone, it was like, hey, they're in a box with a sheet covered over them and you can't look inside. Right? And maybe you can pick up the box to heft the weight of them and you hear metal clanking around in there. Right? We hear later on, uh, let's see, do I have that? Let me make sure I don't get ahead of myself. No, I'll get ahead of myself. Hold on. After the translation was complete, Joseph returned the plates to the angel Moroni and they were taken away by the angel so they are no longer in human possession. So it's not like, well... He used them and then he put them in storage somewhere and we found them. It's like, no, they were taken basically away. The three witnesses, we find out later on, um, ah, I think it was Martin Harris on the end who said this, that, um, yeah, he admitted that they did not see the plates with natural eyes, but with, with, with uh, spiritual eyes. They went into a grove and Joseph Smith said, let's all pray and God will show you the plates. And they prayed and, you know, and eventually they admit that they saw them with supernatural vision. So they didn't actually see the plates. They had like a vision of the plates, right? So the three witnesses do have some testimony that they handled the plates, but like I said, it was that they, they hefted the weight of them. And if they're hefting a bag or hefting a, you know, a box with, and you hear metal clanking, but they're not able to look inside and actually see that's what they're actually saying. Joseph Smith is the one who actually wrote up, uh, especially I know for sure with the eight witnesses, he wrote up the, uh, the actual uh, the testimony and they just had guys sign it, which... Three, uh, four of them come from one family, and three of them are from his, his own family, including his dad and his brother. So conclusion, I don't think Joseph Smith, did, did Joseph Smith probably, did he gather, did he fabricate something? Did he actually make some kind of a metal plate, you know, and put it in a box? And did he have plates at all? I don't know. You know, I don't think he had golden plates found in the earth, you know. Golden plates on what? Which, which, which book? All of them? This, just this. I'll explain the other books in a minute. But it was just the book. I'm going to tell you what the Book of Mormon is about here next. So, but you have to wonder, you know, why, you know, with the Book of Mormon, you know, it is a really interesting story. This idea that they're golden plates. I mean, our scriptures were written on, you know, on scrolls, you know, papyrus and things like that. You know, that's a normal way of writing and so forth. But to inscribe something, you know, in gold is very expensive, very time-consuming, very heavy. You know, ancient cultures inscribed on stone because, I mean, you only have so many options and you know it's going to stick around for a while. But golden plates, it seems like, once again, it's this kind of fascination with materialism and, and gold. So, um, so what's the Book of Mormon about? All right, buckle up. Um, <laughs> no, this is going to be like a paragraph. I'll do my best. The story begins around 500, sorry, 600 B.C. All right, so the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 586 B.C. And so it takes place, it initially starts off in Jerusalem, and God calls two men, Lehi and Ishmael, and their families to go into the wilderness to avoid the destruction that is coming on Jerusalem. Right? So Lehi has a number of sons, right? Um, one of them is Nephi, right? 
and he, become, and he becomes a prophet. So Lehi and his son both become prophets, and God reveals to them many things. He tells them about the Babylonian captivity. He tells them about the Messiah, but which, by the way, will, will be lifted up on a cross. He tells them about the 12 apostles. He even tells them about the apostasy that's going to be going to happen after the 12 apostles. I mean, this, this, he gets a lot of foresight, right? These, so... Um, and, and also the, the, the restoration of the church. So he gets a lot of information, these, these prophets. But eventually, this group, that go, they move out into the wilderness, and God directs them to build a ship to leave. And so they get on a ship, and they leave, and they come to America in, in around, six, around 600 B.C. So, these two, so two people groups you know, from this ship that comes to America arise. There's the Nephites, and they're named after Nephi. This, this guy who's a prophet. But Nephi had some brothers. Think about like Joseph and his brothers or something like that. You know, Jacob, Jacob and Esau. You know, Nephi had some brothers, one of whom, there's Lemuel and Laman. Um, and one of them, you know, Laman, they end up becoming very, very evil. And they they're like kind of fight against Nephi. So it's almost like we have like the good guys and the bad guys. The Nephites are kind of like the good guys. The Lamanites are all like the bad guys. The Nephites were good and righteous, the Lamanites were bad and evil, and they warred constantly. But when they came to America, they saw that it was a, a beautiful place with lots of, lots of good things and horses and cows, and, and, and you know, just it was a very rich area, and they began to thrive. But they constantly warred until the major event in the book happens when Jesus appears in 34 AD, right, in America. And this is after his resurrection and his ascension, and he comes to America and he tells the gospel and everyone believes, right? He preaches the gospel to, I'm going to use the words Native Americans, you know, at this point, you know, people who are here, the Nephites and Lamanites, and everyone tends to believe it, right? And there's peace for a while between all these tribes. However, soon afterward, war breaks out again. Um, the Nephites and the Lamanites just begin to war against each other. Millions of them are killed, especially in the final battle in the Hill Cumorah, which is now near New York. So the Book of Mormon claims to be this, this history of all that's going on for, you know, I don't want to say a thousand years, but like from 600 to like early, you know, a couple hundred years after Jesus. The Nephites, um, the righteous people, they became decadent and they were wiped out by the Lamanites who were kind of like the, the evil people, right? The Lamanites, here's, and here's the kicker, the Lamanites are actually the chief ancestors of the American Indians, Right? So they became, and eventually they became so wicked that they warred against each other and they forgot their own heritage. They forgot that they were Israelites. So when Christopher Columbus arrives on the scene, they've already forgotten that they were actually Israelite people back in the day. That's the, that's the main kind of story of the Book of Mormon. Because one of the questions that was burning in the minds of Americans at this time in history, right, was, who are the Indians? Where did they come from, Right? And so there was, there was actually some theories about that. One of them was that these ancient, that they were they descended from Israelites who came across the sea and populated this area, right? So with that said, there's a whole lot more to it. That's like the, the Cliff Notes version of it. But it, it is a fascinating story. I'm going to say I, re- I read the first book of it. I scanned a lot of it. I didn't read all of it. It's actually longer than the New Testament. Um, it's not particularly well written. Um, it's repetitive. I think the word, the phrase, and it came to pass occurs like, well over 2,000 times. Like, you, it's actually kind of a joke, even among Mormons. Like, and it came to pass, blah, 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 and it came to pass this, and it came to pass this, and you're like, wow. You know, it's just, you know, there's a lot of that. Um, so it's, it can be repetitive. 
It reads in the first person, like it, it's, you know, a lot, a lot of the texts in the, in, the, in the Bible don't read that way. It reads, you know, third person. But like I said, this, the main issue was it was answering a burning question that was important, not really in our day, but definitely in Smith's day, where did the Indians come from? But Joseph Smith was not the first person to suggest this theory. There was a book called the, the, A View of the Hebrews by Ethan Smith, um, which promoted the same idea. And it was actually that book was around during Joseph Smith's idea, during his life. And it might have been that he got his ideas from this. Of course, though, this is before DNA technology, right? Which is probably what you were going to ask, right? So the thesis has kind of been proven false. Indians are not related to Hebrews, right? Like you might find some intermarrying, you know, since that time have, have Jewish people intermarried with, you know, Native Americans. I'm sure some of that has happened from somewhere, you know, but it has not been the case that actually we find the, 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 the most, uh, really, they come from Asia. The idea is that American Indians are descended from East Asians who are thought to have crossed the Bering Sea uh, on a land bridge thousands of years ago. So they're actually Asian. They're not, they're not related to uh, the Hebrews. So some other things... Um, so I moved on. An assessment of the Book of Mormon, then I'll, I'll answer questions here in a minute. But let me just give some, some thoughts about the Book of Mormon. There's not really any archaeological evidence to back up the Book of Mormon, and which is a big, big problem. Because if you heard me say it, this, there was supposed to be a highly developed society, and I want you to look back at this picture, a highly developed society, right, with, well, that's a ziggurat, but like temples and all kinds of different, you know, they were around for a very long time. Right, And there were supposed to be cities and culture and war with millions of people dead. You should find something in the ground, right? Something from battle. But nothing has been found. Nothing has been found. And we've actually found, and we have found things from tribes that are much older than that, you know, and from smaller people groups. So that's, that it continues to be a problem. And some have said, well, actually, this didn't place, take place in North America. It actually took place in South America. I mean, there's all different kinds of arguments. They to... The other thing is Reformed Egyptian doesn't exist as a language. That there's no known language known as that. Um, ancient, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, you know, we see, we see those, you know, that were painted on walls. During Joseph Smith's life, initially when he was writing the Book of Mormon, like, that had not yet been translated. The Rosetta Stone was found in 1799. It was deciphered around the time of the publishing of the Book of Mormon, but he wouldn't have known that, right? So the Book of Mormon uh, was translated, was printed in 1830, but by the 1850s, actually after Joseph Smith had died, we were able to translate basically any ancient hieroglyphic text. Um, but Reformed Egyptian is not one of them. <laughs> it's not found anywhere outside antiquity. Another interesting thing is that it's written in King James English. So, um, and it came to pass that I spake unto my brethren, saying, Let us go up again to Jerusalem, and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his fifty? Yea, and, and it goes on. I'm not going to read. But it's written in like a King James English, which is interesting because the plates were supposed to be an ancient document, right? Like 600 B.C., you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and it was deciphered, it was, it was translated around the 1830s um, when Smith lived. He would not have translated it to sound like an early 17th century British person, right? Like that's not the way people spoke in that time period. 
Um, so if you trans, so for example, if you translated an ancient document today, you wouldn't say thee, thou, though, thine. You, would, you just wouldn't use those um, those words. Um, but neither would a Joseph Smith in his day. People just didn't talk like that. The King James Bible sounds like it does for a reason because of the way English was spoke at the time of the translation. So it sounds like it's a deliberate attempt to make it sound like Scripture, right? He's going out of his way, but. <laughs> Here, there's even more interesting things about that. There are large portions of, that are just quotations from the Bible, right? So you can find large passages of Scripture from Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, like the, the entire Sermon on the Mount is basically like retaught. Like it's almost like put in the Bible or put in the Book of Mormon, you know, when he's speaking to the Nephites and the Lamanites, right? Of course, with some changes. Um, but here's the other thing. We, so it seems as though Joseph Smith was quoting from the King James Bible with some alterations. At the same time, we actually know the specific edition that he was quoting from. It's the 1769 edition of the King James Bible. And we know that because he includes in the Book of Mormon errors that were specific to that edition of the King James Bible. All right? Including printing errors. Right? So how did an ancient record hundreds of years before Christ include the same heirs of a specific edition of the Bible used in Joseph Smith's day? Beyond that, one thing, if you have a King James or even a New King James Version of the Bible, you might notice there's a lot of words in italics. You ever notice that? And that's because it's actually helpful. It's the translators letting you know, like, hey, we're supplying these words in there to smooth it out for English translation. Like these, these italicized words are like just bridging the gap, and we're, we're inserting them to smooth it out but these are not in the original text, right? But those those words are in the Book of Mormon where he quotes it from the, from the King James Bible. So, um, but those, so the idea that, that he, he, why are there words that were not in the original Bible but are in specific um, editions of the King James Bible in the Book of Mormon? It's just interesting, <laughs> right? Um, there's anachronisms. Things appear in the Book of Mormon that are completely out of time and place. This is my last thing that'll, open for questions. I, I was just reading the other day, um, it's in 1st Nephi, it's one of the first books, chapter 18, and he's telling the story when they're on the boat, and, his, and Nephi is, and his older brothers bind him up, right? And, and when they bind him, the compass that they're using to cross the ocean no, stops working. That's kind of like a, a curse from God. But you know, when they, when they do untie him, it begins to work again. And I'm like, I'm going to Google that. When were compasses invented? The compass was not invented until 200 BC in China. But compasses were not, did not arrive in the Middle East or Europe until the 1300s A.D. So the idea that we're talking about a compass, this is like thousands of years out of date. When they come to, when they, in the book of First Nephi, when they come to America, they start talking about all the things they see. Horses and cattle, oxen, swine, sheep, goats, elephants, wheels, chariots, wheat, silk, steel, iron. None of those things existed before Christopher Columbus in America. No, we, we brought those things from, from Europe, right? So those were not native. But the fact that they're in the Book of Mormon apparently, you know, 2,000 years ago. Yeah. It's that, so some say he, there's, there's debate with how literate was he. I think he was. I don't think he's, I don't think he's unintelligent, you know. So, um, but, but part of the story is, is that he was considered to be very, not very literate. And so like, well, that, must be this is a miracle because no nobody you know could have produced this without great learning and so forth um so those who believe in the book of mormon as sacred scripture as true history there's a lot of things you have to really kind of get over there's a lot of problems with the book of mormon as 
just as a book and as its history um, that you kind of have to get around. All right, there's a lot more to it. I'm going to pause right there and ask what questions (laughs) do you have? Yes. So, if these things, if you can find things that dispute his accuracy mm-hmm. and the accuracy of any anything, yes. Why do people still do it? Yes. So. No, I th- people have different reasons for it. So one of the things the Mormons talk about a lot is bearing their testimony, right? It's like you know, and, but but one of the things that, that you hear a lot is like, I'm going to bear my testimony, but it's almost the same thing. Um, where, like, I believe that the Book of Mormon is true, I believe that Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration, and the Church of Jesus Christ is the true church, like, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It, it'll sound like that, and, like, they'll have people come up every Sunday and bear their testimony, or, or like, when kids, you know, they'll bear their testimony. Like, I, I prayed about it, and I know that it's true, because one of the things is, in the, in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, it actually, like, he commends you, he says, um, read the Book of Mormon, ponder the message in your heart, pray and ask God if it's true, and he'll tell you that it's true. Like, once again, it's like, it's a bold statement, right? Pray and ask God if it's true, and he'll reveal it to you. But it's one of those things where it seems like the experience, you know, is trying to mirror Joseph Smith's. It's like if you tell yourself long enough, you, if you just say, like, this, the Book of Mormon is the Book of God. The, 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 Joseph Smith is a prophet. You just kind of say it enough, and you kind of make yourself begin to believe it. That, that's called confabulation. Yep, there you go. So, yeah. a, a, there does seem to... Yeah, it seems like there's a lot. There, there's some to be a good amount of that. I will say the Mormon Church goes out of its way to like they have. They're not like ignoring this problem. They actually believe this. Like, this is a true book and true history, and so they have to find arguments around. Like you know, horses are not actually horses; it's another animal. And you know, and it's and when they say this, it actually means something else. And like I said, maybe this wasn't North America. Maybe this took place in South America. And like they so they try to have arguments around it. You know, um, but they're pretty big. Pretty big problems. And you gotta have faith. You gotta have faith. That's that's part of it too. I think that, you know, the idea is like, well, if it's harder to believe, then your faith must be stronger. You know, and then there's there's you know, it came like I said, it came out of the a certain time in American history that was rejecting some of the rationalism and the, the enlightenment, and so it really is like, hey, praying God will reveal to you, you know, and if God reveals it to you to be true in your heart of hearts, then it must be true no matter what anything else, like contra every, all the evidence and everything else, it must be true. But that, 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 that is an issue. Um, what do we have next here? Can I move on for sake of... You know what? Do I have time to stop here? We should probably take a quick break. Okay, I think I'm going to go ahead and kick us back in because uh, I'm not great at managing our time. <laughs> we, went, we, we already went long on Sunday morning because of my fault. I can't do that twice in one Sunday, so... Um, or get points deducted. So I thought, let's talk really quickly, because I talked about Joseph Smith, and we kind of left off 1830, I'm, you know, with the printing of the Book of Mormon. A lot has happened since then. I'm going to go rapid fire through, like, a little bit of their history, because I think it is important. And uh, we'll talk about some of their doctrine as well, and then how do we kind of, how do we reach Mormons. Um, so, LDS, Church Growth and Development. So, um, Joseph, the, uh, Joseph Smith was named, um, hold on, where's my, no- my notes are off here, hold on one second. So, uh, 
when Joseph Smith printed the Book of Mormon, originally there was about 5,000 uh, copies that were printed the fir- in the first edition uh, in his area in New York. Um, he had a few followers, you know, that, kinda, that he gained, and, uh, and there were some those who were baptized into his church. Um, he was named an elder and a prophet. The church grew steadily with baptisms the first year, but it didn't find traction in his native New York area. I hesitate to do this, but Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own country. But it is true, like, I will confess, I don't believe he's a prophet, but I'm just saying, like, people who knew him were like, what? This guy, like, so he, he didn't, he didn't even get, like, permission to, like, meet his church in, like, in like, the town hall or, like, wherever he wanted to meet initially. So, uh, but Mormonism was really early on in its life, sending out missionaries um, to Ohio, to Missouri, and the surrounding areas, right? So, um, it wasn't very long before they moved, moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where there was already, when he got there, there was already a congregation of 100 people, right? So, the Mormon mission was going out pretty quickly. My wife was me to hit the picture. So, um, yeah. So uh, this. So Joseph would operate out of Kirtland, Ohio, for the next six years. At this place, uh, Smith has dozens of new revelations. Right, things that God is teaching them. Right. So not that he found a new book, but that God is direct as a prophet. Now God is directly revealing to him new revelations, and 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 their doctrine is beginning to form as the church develops. So they, they start adding apostles to the church leadership. They're, they're, that's it. They're, they're restoring apostles, and they have something called the first presidency. And he becomes, and, and he is the president and the apostle um, of the church. Here, their first temple was built. This is the uh, temple in Kirtland. Um, this is the inside of it. You can still go there. Um, and so the, the local residents, though, did not like the Mormons. And they are at times subjected to mob violence, including Smith himself. I think he was tarred and feathered. I think he was uh, in this area. So, uh, but he's having new revelations all the time. And these are collected eventually and gathered into a book called Doctrines and Covenants, right? So, like, Doctrines and Covenants uh, is really just, like, I forget how many it is, a hundred and, how many revelations there are? 130-something, yeah. 136 or something like that, um, additional revelations uh, that is really building their doctrine. Oh, God told me something new, and then he introduces something new. Sometimes it's very, very specific about something that was very, very time-bound, um, and sometimes it was something that was broader for the church as a whole. But uh, things really kind of came to a head while he was in Kirtland. Um, Smith formed something called the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. He tried to get into finance and have a bank just for the LDS kind of church. He was trying to get people into that. Eventually, that collapsed, right? The bank collapsed, which led to a lot of accusations of financial and sexual impropriety by Smith. Two to three hundred people left the church, which, by the way, there's already two hundred to three hundred people. There's a whole lot more than that. But including, but several key leaders, like all, you know, the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, all three of them were out of the church, plus some additional people, elders and, you know, prophet, other people in the church, uh, left as well. So this was a this is called the Kirtland apostasy. And they lost a lot of people. Uh, they moved to a place called uh, Nauvoo, right? There was a, eventually there was a mass migration from that um, to Missouri. Once they began to lose favor in Ohio, there was a mass migration to Missouri, um, where there and there were thousands of church members there. Um, However, the non-Mormon neighbors didn't really like them. Missouri was not kind. My home state was not kind to Mormons initially, right? 
Um, they tried to block them from voting because imagine, right? I mean, Missouri, you know, was not super populous. It didn't have a high population at this time. And you have thousands of people coming in who are all voting a certain way, according to one prophet telling them to vote a certain way. So if you're in like a region, you know, or like in a city or whatever, and it's like this massive people come in and they all have a voting block. Whoa, that could change policy. It could change state elections. It could change all these things. And so, the, so they were trying to block Mormons from being able to vote. The governor, actually, uh, governor uh, ordered to be, have them expelled from the state. Um, Joseph Smith was even arrested and put in jail for five months. So they, so they were only in Missouri for so long. Uh, in, in 1839, Brigham Young relocates them to Illinois, where they are more welcome. Illinois was certainly more welcoming to them. They eventually settled in a, in a, in a place called Nauvoo, Illinois, which my mom has visited, my family visited there. And I was just talking to her on the phone yesterday about it because it's like old time. You, like In Missouri, what do you do? You go to old ancient sites, you go to old New Salem or whatever it was where Abraham Lincoln was born and all that kind of stuff. But um, they go there. And um, within a year, um, this place is, is really exploding. Uh, Joseph Smith is named mayor and military leader of Nauvoo. So he's a lot of things. He's apostle, prophet, he's president, mayor, military leader. He's got a lot of accolades. But at this time, at this time, Nauvoo was nearly as large as Chicago, in Illinois. Isn't that nuts? Um, with the influx, and there was also converts from Europe. Within like a few years of the church being being founded, Joseph Smith was sending out missionaries to Europe, and there was actually people who were converting and coming to America. In 1843, Smith announced two new practices. Right, these are you know part of the the revelations that are in doctrines and covenants. Um, one of them is baptism for the dead. We'll kind of maybe get in that a little bit later, but you can be baptized for people who've already died and give them a chance to accept the true gospel while they're in perdition. The second is plural marriage, right? And, but that one is kind of kept a secret, and it's not going to be announced openly, but rumors began to spread. I'm not going to talk a lot about this. Now, this is the one that's like really interests people, you know, but, um, and it was actually part of his downfall. But Smith practiced... Um, polygamy or having multiple, many wives long before he actually announced it. Just really quickly, just so you know, Joseph Smith was married to at least 34 women. Of those 34, 11 were married to other living men. So like he went to a man and said, like he married a woman who was already married to another guy who was still alive, right? Um, seven of them were teenage girls, one as young as 14, um, he married one mother-daughter set, like a mother and her daughter, and three sets of sister sets. All of this was kept very quiet for a long time. And this is another one of those things, by the way, that the church kind of had to like, of course, polygamy was known in Mormonism, but like the degree that to which it was, it was talked about was really, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was trying to be washed aside to some degree, but it's something the church has had to speak about openly, right? And a lot of Mormons, when the internet came about and all this was, found out, like, what? <laughs> and, and it caused a lot of Mormons to leave. In 1844, he announced an intention to run for U.S. president. Um, but this is the year uh, that, that Joseph Smith actually died. So uh, in a sermon, uh, he ordered the destruction of a printing press. There was, it was an opposition newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor. Um, and because you can't do that, it was a criminal charge. It landed him in jail. So he, he stayed in, in Carthage jail, him, his brother Hiram, and somebody else. And while they, were, while they were in this jail, this is the Carthage jail, while they were in jail, a mob came and 
came upon the jail, broke into his room. He, he had a gun stuck to him and he was shooting out the door. But he, they broke into the room and they shot his brother and they shot him. And he, he fell out of the second story, went over down the ground. He was shot a few more times and he was killed. And so uh, he died at the age of 38. By the way, those are the actual death masks of him and his brother. So Joseph Smith is the guy on the left, and uh, his brother Hiram is the guy on the right. So that's what he looked like when he was dead, I guess. Um, but that, we don't actually have a photograph of him, of him. We have paintings, a few paintings of him, but there's actually a lot of speculation because we don't know exactly what he looked like. So, um, of course, for Mormons, we you know, this was, you know, he's a martyr, right? That, that's the idea. He was, he was killed for his faith. So this almost just plays into, like, you know, um, the story of him. I'm going to go rapid fire here, so just really two quick things. Uh, of course, after this, there was a splintering uh, of the Mormon church. You know, Joseph Smith's son, you know, is he, who, it's that vacuum of leadership. Who's going to take over the church now? And there was several different people, including his wife and his, his son. And, but ultimately, the guy was Brigham Young. Uh, who, who arose to leadership, he's the primary Mormon. The church coalesced around him, and he led the LDS church out west to Salt Lake City, where they are today. Largely, that's the hub. Um, there's a whole lot more history there. I'm just going to skip. Just know that that's, that's a big thing. And then uh, today, uh, we, and I say this, you know, the church has, has grown since then, but I would say that I mean, the church has grown. There's millions of Mormons worldwide. There's temples all over the world. You can go on the website. They have dozens of temples planned, like all throughout the world. Um, they're, they're continuing to build and have not slowed down. Um, one of the things that's interesting, and I, I say it's a kinder and gentler Mormonism, because in, in the very beginning, and if you, the story was Joseph Smith went out to a grove, and he prayed, which one's the right church? God says, they're all wrong. They're all an abomination. They're all false doctrines. Don't go to any of them. I'm going to tell you the true church. And so there was, early on, this key distinction, like, no, we're the true church. We're the restored church. We have the true doctrine. We have the true prophet. We have these things. And so I think the moniker Mormon was more uh, freely taken. Like, hey, yes, I'm I'm a Mormon. There was a focus on distinction, but the past few decades seemed to, they, they, they've changed their approach, especially the outsiders, where they're, it seems that they're trying to be more mainstream um, in how they're perceived, which is part of the reason why they, the, the prophet, uh, current president, I think it was the, the, sorry, the previous president, said he wanted their name to be not Mormon, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, if you, and, and it's, that's just part of the way they want to be perceived. So I actually, if you look on their website, I went, a lot of their quotes, a lot of st- I went on their website to see what they say. And, and there's a, a question, you know, are Mormons Christian? Here's what they say on their website. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unequivocally, unequivocally affirm themselves to be Christians. They worship the God, God the Eternal Father in the name of Jesus Christ. When asked what the Latter-day Saints believe, Joseph Smith put Christ at the center the fundamental principles of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended up to heaven. And all the other things are only appendages to these which pertain to our religion. It seems like they're saying, like, hey, we're going to, you know, of course we're Christian because we believe these things about Christ. And you're like, well, I could say amen to most of that, you know, to that stuff right there. You know, and if you ask a Mormon, are you a Christian? Yeah, Jesus Christ's name is in our church. We love Jesus. We we believe that you know he's the Savior, and you know he's the Son. Of, like that's where it gets really confusing. And I think that's actually and 
there, that's more of a turn in the past few decades, especially trying to appear more more mainstream, at least to outsiders. Which asks the question, you know, are are Mormons Christian, right? So let's go over a few key LDS beliefs and. There's so much we could go through. I'm going to do four main topics. God, Jesus, salvation, um, and scripture. There's so many more things we could talk about, right? So I'll try to hit these uh, relatively quickly. So God the Father, what do we believe? What do they, not we, what do they believe about God the Father? This is from Doctrines uh, and Covenants. God the Father is the supreme being in whom we believe, whom we worship, and to whom we pray. He is the ultimate creator, ruler, and preserver of all things. He is perfect, has all power, and knows all things. Which, by the way, I say amen to every last one of those. He has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Wait a minute. Now there's the difference right there, right? Lorenzo, I'll read you two more quotes. Lorenzo Snow, the church's fifth president, coined a well-known couplet. And I'll have to explain this in a little bit. As man is now, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. Some interesting ideas about who God is and who we can become. I'll, I'll let you sit on that for a minute. We'll come back to that. Um, let me read this next quote. Latter, Latter, oh, don't see here. Let's see here. Yeah, I'll put this up there. Latter Day Saints. Have, have also been moved by the knowledge of their divine parentage, including a heavenly mother, as well as a heavenly father. That knowledge plays an important role in the Latter-day Saint belief. As Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles wrote, Our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. I just kind of cherry-picked a few quotes that are like, Huh, that sounds interesting. So much of the LDS understanding of God the Father comes from this first vision, right? Where Joseph Smith is in the grove and two personages appear to him, the Father and the Son. And they're both in person. And one of the things that Joseph Smith starts preaching is that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone. That he has a body like ours. Not just Christ. We Christians believe that the Son took on human flesh, right? We even believe that he retains that, right? That, that he retains that nature. Um, but... They believe something different about God. They believe he is the creator of our world and everything in it, in some sense, or the organizer of it at least. And that God's true name is Elohim. But this is what's really interesting is that God, Heavenly Father, has not always been God. That he used to be like we are now, a man. And that he progressed to Godhood. Beginning at some distant point, you know, he presumably lived, presumably, on an earth-like planet, and he worshipped a God above him. And he used to be man, and he continues to have a physical body, but he somehow attained to Godhood. That is very different than what Christians believe, right? But beyond that, this belief is that God has a heavenly wife, right? And, and him and his heavenly wife copulate and have spirit children, right, that are in heaven, right? And, that, uh, and that so... When it says that we are made in the image of God, it's, it's not just you know, the way Christians believe it, that we are, we are like God in, in, in certain ways. We, um, we have his authority on the earth. We have the ability to relate and, and, and reason and create and things like that. Um, but literally, we have a physical body because God has a physical body, right? And so it's this really interesting idea um, that God um, has a wife in heaven that they 
have spirit children, and that human beings, before you were here, you existed as a spirit child in heaven. I'm going to get to anthropology here in a little bit, what they they believe about about human beings, because that's really the main thrust of it. But they have a very different understanding of, of who God is. Um, so when they say heavenly father, they don't, they don't mean literally that like, they'll use that phrase a lot, heavenly father, you know, not, not, not just our father in heaven, but heavenly father. They mean differently when we say it. When we say our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, because we believe God is our creator, right? But he is distinct from us. He's different than us, right? But they literally believe in a, that God is all of our father in a very different way, right? In a direct way. Um, so they believe that Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not actually a trinity, but they're three distinct gods, right? I don't even know where to go from that. I just have to like drop that on you and keep moving on most, but because it's because there's a there's a lot there. Um, some of this will become more clear as we keep talking. Talking a little bit about about Jesus. Um, by the way, there, there's some white Jesuses in, in Christian uh, artwork, but that is a very Caucasian Jesus. <laughs> um, um, but you got to understand, Mormonism is a very American religion. Like, in some sense, America is like a promised land, right? If you read in the book of First Nephi, like, the Jews are t- to escape Jerusalem's destruction and go to America. And, and this, this land is spoken of as like the promised land. So it's a very American-centered religion. Um, so, yes, they do believe that Jesus was a historical figure who lived, died, preached. You know, uh, is just, they believe basically what's in the New Testament about him to some degree. He died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended. We've covered that. Um, but like I said, when they, believe, when they say Jesus is the Son of God, they believe he's the literal offspring of the Father and his heavenly wife, right? That he was the firstborn of the Father, literally, but also Lucifer is his brother, like Satan is actually his brother. You're nodding your head because you've heard that before, right? It's, it's really interesting. And that, that, you know, God the Father had a plan, you know, who's going to, you know, a, a plan for salvation for humanity and Lucifer and, and, and Jesus... They both had their own ideas, right? And God the Father liked Jesus' plan better, so we sent him to be the Savior. And, but Jesus and Satan are brothers in this, in this idea. Um, the Book of Mormon seems at times to try to, to really kind of confuse... Can, can, Joseph Smith seems confused about what Trinitarian doctrine is too. And to be honest, like, so does, so does uh, Islam. If you read the Quran, how it speaks about the Trinity, sometimes it includes Mary in the Trinity. You're like... Mary's not in the Trinity. What do you, like, no Christian teaches that, you know. But yeah, so there's a quote in Book of Ether 314, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. It's like, no. And like, you, you, for anyone who's ever taught the Trinity, it's, it can be tricky, right? You know, like, you know, there, there's one God, but there are three persons. All are equally God, but they're distinct persons. And, you know, so that seems like he actually misunderstands the Trinity. So like there's, you know, but eventually it goes off. And so... Mormonism is by no means a monotheistic religion. In fact, you might say that there's no more polytheistic religion in human history. And I'll explain that in just a second when we start talking about salvation for human beings. Um, But yeah, they believe Jesus. They'll say things like he is the Savior, that he made atonement for our sins. By the way, in the Garden of Eden and the cross, like they really, it's weird. They talk about the atonement happening kind of in the Garden. So they believe that he plays a critical role in salvation. Um, and that he preached in the Americas, as I, as I showed you before. I really want to spend our time talking about salvation, because that's really kind of the crux, okay? They do have some weird theology, of course, about God and Jesus and other things as well. But what do they believe about human beings? What's their anthropology? What do they believe about man? 
Well, they believe that you ultimately are a spirit child of Heavenly Father and Mother, that they have all, everyone who's ever existed, you know, on our planet is, is the product of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother having children. You are one of them, right? And so they believe in a pre-existence, a pre-moral, that you, were, that you, were, you existed in heaven with the Father and with the Mother, with everyone else, um, and that was your first estate. So when you are born, you are actually given a body here on earth, and your purpose is to get back to Heavenly Father. So you, you, were, you, you were in heaven, and then you came to earth. You have stuff to do here we'll talk about in a minute. But your whole goal is to get back to Heavenly Father. Right? The fall happened. Right? They believe in the fall. We think it was all bad, right? But it's actually kind of good and bad for Mormons. It's bad because, yes, it did cause us to experience sp- spiritual and physical death. But it's good because it actually puts us on the path to receive eternal life and something called exaltation, right? Um, so the fall is an integral part of Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. It has a twofold direction, right? It's downward and yet forward. It can propel us into the thing that we're looking for, which is exaltation. Because the goal for a Mormon is not just to get back to heaven when you die. It's to be fully exalted, to become like God is. As man is, God once was. He used to be a man. As God is now, man may become. That man, your, your, your desire is not just to go to heaven, but to become God's. It's pretty staggering, right? <laughs> that like, there's a belief that we, that what's called eternal progression. That salvation is not just being forgiven and, and having a new nature, you know, and being worshiping God in heaven, but actually ascending to the same level as God himself. So this, there's actually like several level layers to this, right? So they do believe that Jesus gained immortality for everyone, that his death on the cross in some sense saves everyone from physical death, right? So everybody gets, the, the fact that everyone's going to be resurrected, Jesus did that, right? But there's also something more than that. So everybody's going to be resurrected someday, but salvation is freedom from the spiritual effects of the fall. So people should also seek salvation, People may be saved or gain salvation from spiritual death, right? So by faith in him, by, by living in obedience to the laws and ordinances of, of his gospel, we can receive salvation, which is similar to what we talk about. It's forgiveness, it's freedom from the spiritual effects of the fall. But it doesn't stop there, right? There's eternal life or exaltation. And that, that is, the, is the point ultimately, is, this, is getting the celestial glory, right? Um, Man, it's really hard to talk about this in, in such a way that it makes sense quickly. <laughs> um, the goal is, is, is something called exaltation. It's, it's more than going to heaven to be with God, but to fulfill your true potential to become like God in full. Um, so here's the thing, though. If you're going to become like God, right, you have the premortal life, you come to earth, you have a mortal life. When you die, you go to the spirit world for a while, like everyone goes to, you know, some sort of a spirit world. Uh, you know, then, but when you're all resurrected, somebody, we're all going to go to one of these kingdoms, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But the thing is, is if you want to be where God is, if you want to be like Him, there, there's other things that have to happen, and and it's, you know, indiv- so there's like individual salvation, you know, which is you know, an individual thing. But if you want to receive, be like God and have become a god and have a heavenly wife and or a heavenly husband and, and have spirit children and rule over your own planets or whatever it might be like other things have to happen so that's why there's temples so temple temples are not like churches like special things happen there when when somebody goes to a temple they go they're, and they're sealed in marriage you know when we get married it's like hey you're married you know i'm married to my wife 
we believe what Christ said, that marriage is for this lifetime. People are either given or marriage or, or you know, in, in, the, in the world to come. But Mormons believe in eternal marriage, right? That if, so if, if me and Lachelle were good Mormons and we were uh, sealed in a temple, we're sealed for time and eternity, which means that she would be my wife forever and I her husband forever. So in eternity, we would be able to, we'll have spirit babies for the rest. Does that sound good, Lachelle? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, um, yeah, so here, but, but by the way, polygamy is actually still a thing in the Mormon church, even though it's not practiced largely physically, and that's a whole other conversation. But let's say if, like, if uh, the current Mormon prophet, his first wife, who he was sealed to, died, but he got remarried and sealed in the temple again. So presumably, in his theology, he would have two wives in, in, the, in heaven. So polygamy is actually still in their theology. It's just not, you know, it's still there. But temple marriage is, is for things like sealing for time and eternity. So that if good Mormons achieve exaltation, they'll be married forever in heaven. So by the way, when we talk about like family, like it is a big deal for Mormons. You see that they have big families, right? They talk about marriage a lot. Like there's like an upfront, like, amen, I agree with all that stuff. But they also, there's a reason why they believe in eternal marriage and families being together literally forever. One of the difficult things of talking about this is there's no like catechism or systematic theology. There's no Wayne Grudem systematic theology for the Mormon church. You kind of have to find it in different places, and they have four different books of scripture. But there are three levels. I'm going to kind of hit on two more things real quick, and then we've got to move on here. But there are three levels of, of heaven, right? So there's the uh, celestial kingdom. This is only for good Mormons, right? So there, and, and even there, there's three levels within that. Um, but to, to get to the highest degree of glory, if you're here, you get to be with God, Heavenly Father. And you get to, you know, have a, you know, have the opportunity to become a god and, and so forth, um, to to achieve that full access to Father God. Right? There's also the terrestrial kingdom, where good people who have not had the fullness of the gospel, you know, who, who are, you know, and maybe even like me and you, you know, like we, we would get here. We wouldn't get there, but we'd we'd get here maybe, where you get Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but you don't get the Father. Just saying, you don't get full access. And you don't get to be married forever. And there's the telestial kingdom, right? There are those who died apart from the faith. They, they never heard about Christ, right? And they went, but they went to hell. They went, and, you know, they, when they died, they went to hell. But um, they were preached the gospel in hell, and they believed at the second coming, when they're resurrected, they can go here. Which is why Mormons baptize for the dead, right? If they go in their temples and they... And that's one reason why Ancestry.com and all these, like, whether so and Ancestry, is because they get baptized for other people, right? So they have an opportunity to hear the gospel, believe, and all those, all those kind of things. It's necessary, right? So they take that very, very seriously. And they, they want to be baptized for all their family members as far back as they can go, right? So um, it's not just like a family. It's not like they like scrapbooking just for fun. It's like they have theology behind that. Um, yeah, so they believe that there's, there's all these different levels of heaven, and there's like an outer darkness. The, the idea is like, hey, if, if, you, if you never believe in Christ, you die, you go to hell, you, you reject the preaching of the gospel there, no one was baptized for you, like there is a chance you could go in the outer darkness for good. But honestly, if Mormons are, true, uh, if Mormons are correct, we're okay, I think. Um, if, if you had anxiety about it, I think you're okay. So what's the so the Mormon gospel? Um, 
So they have, they have the articles of faith. They do have that, but it's very slight. Um, it's almost like if we had just our belief statement and not the expanded doctrinal statement. It's only like a few things. But Article 3, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Article 4, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, yeah, that, but that Article 3 right there is interesting. Like, how are you saved? Well, yes, you have faith, but you also you may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. The gospel has, is, is laws and ordinances. It's very different. So they'll use like, yeah, you have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have to believe in His atonement, and it's by grace. At the end of the day, it's a works-based religion. Yes, you have to believe the right things, right? But you have to do a lot of work to get the celestial kingdom, which you won't get there unless you are sealed in a temple, and you have to have a temple recommend. You have to be in good standing with your, with your stake president or your ward, ward president, whoever it might be, the bishop of the, of the stake, which is like a, almost like a, a bishop of, an Episcopal, of a group of parishes. Um, yeah, so you have to say like, hey, I'm obeying the word of wisdom, which is in Doctrines and Covenants. I'm not going to drink hot drinks. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do things like that. Uh, I'm tithing. They check. I'm, I'm, I'm giving 10% of all my income to the church. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing all these things. Okay, here's your recommendation. I recommend that you can go to the temple. You know, And then if you go to the temple, then you can do these things. It's very much like, you know, it's like God the Father sent his spirit children to the, to the earth so you can prove that you're worthy to become a god very much a work-centered religion. And you can see, and I'm going to speak like, when we talk about the gospel, assuming we have time, <laughs> um, yeah, that to be a Mormon, is it, it, it's a lot of work. And there's not a lot of assurance. Um, and maybe that's one reason why they're so dedicated to, the, to what the things that they do. So let's talk about scriptures real quick. I did, I did talk about the Mormon, the, uh, the Book of Mormon. We'll mention that again in a second. They do believe, you know, they, and there are four scriptures. Um, that, yeah, the Holy Bible is one of them. They do say that's, that's one of their scriptures, um, so long as it's translated correctly. So, meaning like, that, that's one of the challenges you can read. You can read a scripture, um, and it, it can be very easy to say, well, that's mistranslated, or that's inaccurate, or this or this. But um, specifically the King James Bible, so I'm going to say, if you, if you are witnessing to a Mormon, it's probably helpful. That they're probably more receptive to King James. Like if you bust out the ESV, the NIV, they say, well, that's been changed. You know, so just, just, for, just for, you know, for, for reaching out to them, you might want to have the King James on hand. <laughs> um, so they do believe the Bible is, is Scripture, but like I said, it's been changed. So, but here's the thing. They believe since precious doctrines have been removed or changed or altered, the Bible is not sufficient. Remember, Christians, we believe, good Protestants, the Bible is sufficient. It, it is enough to, to make you um, fully fit everything God expects of you, right? So the key doctrines of Scripture, or the key doctrines of LDS Church are not found in the Bible, right? They're found in their other books, their, their other revelations. And all of those things are what we inter- they interpret Scripture in light of, right? Those have kind of a, that's really where the authority kind of, kind of lands. If, an, if another Scripture says something, it speaks clearer than this. Um, the Book of Mormon I've talked about, right? You know, it's... <laughs> Man, Joseph Smith was bold. Listen, he says, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct book of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion and a man would get nearer to God by abiding its precepts than any other. He's throwing down the gauntlet, right? That's in like the introduction, by the way. Like, um, yeah, saying this book is the most correct book on earth. You'll get closer to God by reading this book than any other. Um, Yeah. 
So uh, we talked a little bit about the Book of Mormon already. But I would say, apart from just being like fiction, <laughs> um, most of, like, I would say, like the, 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 the really distinct doctrines are not really in this book. I really think they're like in the rest of them. Uh, doctrines and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. I feel like that's where he really began to develop a lot of things that are distinctive about, about the church. Um, and so the Pearl of Great Price, uh, I already mentioned Doctrines and Covenants. That's, um, uh, you know, all these different individual revelations that God supposedly gave Joseph Smith along the way. They're all collected. The Pearl of Great Price is another supposedly ancient document. One is the Book of Abraham, a book that Abraham wrote. There's the Book of Moses. There's something on church history, and then his own unique translation of Matthew 24 is in there. I mean, I, I could read to you, like, it's interesting, like, in the book of Abraham, um, there's a creation account, but it's a retelling of Genesis. And, uh, but instead of, I could read it, it's Genesis 1, but God is now plural instead of singular, right? And, this, and they, the gods, said, let there be light, and there was light. And they, the gods, command, comprehend the light, for it was bright. Every time I highlighted it, it's God's plural, right? So you started changing doctrine and saying, that, you know, that's what it is. But they also believe in an open canon, which means like, hey, we could have new revelation. The church has always had a prophet, seer, and revelator. Currently, a guy named Russell M. Nelson, he's in his 90s. But new revelations really can kind of carry the same weight as scripture, right? They believe, hey, God, God is the same. He hasn't changed in this regard. He, he, he revealed in the past, he revealed now. So when they talk about like, hey, prophecy, they're not talking about like how we talk about prophecy like small p. I mean, it's like uppercase p prophecy, like new revelations that are binding on the church, right? doesn't happen very often. I'm going to say that. It doesn't happen very often anymore. Um, Yeah, they believe that that God will continue revealing things. So, any questions real quick? Yes? Glad you asked. Bria, do you have one? Yes, sorry. So, do you have any thoughts on, like, why did he do this? 15-year-old. Well, he wasn't 15 when he did it, I think. Yeah, he was around 19 or 20. He was in his 20s when he came. Like, why? I mean, by himself, and I'm assuming, like, Carlin, kind of New York, before it got crazy big. Why? I, so that's a hard question to ask. I th- well, let me ask you. I think he was a fraud. I think that he knew he was doing it, too. I don't think that he was... Uh, I don't think that he was uh, really thought it was true. Uh, it, could have, it could have been because he was trying to uh, make money off of it. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, the, the guy who created Scientology, first he wrote his book, Diet, and that's a whole other thing. But anyway, like he was just trying to make money off of a, a, new, philo- a new psychology. It didn't work. It turned into a religion. If you want to make money, you got to make you got to create a religion, right? So there's there's that to it, you know. At the same time, kind of like any. I say cult leader, any new movement leader, like sometimes these people start believing their own lie. So I wonder if like he, he originally came up for the, for run reason, for money, for notoriety, for, for whatever reason it might be. And then you start calling yourself a prophet and people start following you in the thousands and you're like, maybe I, maybe I do have a direct access to God and, you, and they start getting bold and taking things. So I can't discount the demonic. Like I don't put all of this on just him. You know? Well, there's, there's a, a rift between uh, the Canadian uh, Mormons and the USA Mormons because mm-hmm. the uh, basically uh, there's a Mormon World Bank okay. in uh, Salt Lake City mm-hmm. and they're to run a certain bit of 
whatever they collect in tithes in Canada, mm -hmm. they have to run that money through the Mormon bank in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. And they're uh, and there's a real risk. Yeah. Yeah, Mormon Church is very, very rich, very, very wealthy. They buy up a lot of property, and yeah, it's a whole, whole other thing. <laughs> you know, um, let me. Uh, we got fifteen minutes. I got to cover a few things here. <laughs> so, are they Christian? No. Next question. Moving on. No. <laughs> That's not fair. Um, so. Um, I'll give you uh, a few things. One, no, because they believe in a different God. Uh, we believe God has always been God and there will never be another. The God has not changed. I'm the same. Jesus says I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. That's a strong verse against like the not the idea of, of God having changed used to being a man becoming God or and people becoming God. First Timothy two five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Isaiah forty four, six through eight, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from, old, from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. They just believe in a, in a different God, right? And, and um, they believe in a different Jesus, right? No matter what, and, and they use the same language. They, they, they use the, names, the Lord's name and they... They they speak from the, from the from the same Bible, at least you know. But they believe fundamentally different things about God that are incongruent. They are not Trinitarians. They are very very much polytheistic, right? Not only are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three unique gods, but God had a God. Heavenly Father had a God before Him. Presumably, and they they mention that, but it's kind of like it's a deep mystery. There's nothing known about that, but they have to acknowledge it, right? Um. And so, and that if, if Mormons and people can become gods, like, it's more polytheistic than Hinduism. Like, it's innumerable. There's an innumerable number of gods. Um, secondly, yeah, they're different anthropology, right? We, we believe that you came into being when you were born. Um, that's a whole different conversation, but we don't believe in a spirit children. We don't believe in a preexistence. Um, so we, we definitely don't believe that you can become gods, right? That is not part of salvation, right? Uh, we, yes, we can take, be partakers of the divine nature, you know, the Word of God tells us, yes, we can become like Him. We ought to become like Him, but we will never become Him. We will never um, blur that line. I'm sorry? Yes, we are adopted into His family and we receive, you know, but Jesus is the only begotten. He's the one and only Son of God. And even that is, is different from how they believe it. You know, so yes, and Jesus is, is our brother, right? We speak about that as well. It's one of, the, one of the difficult things, you know, and I think Satan loves to do this. He likes to take a, tr a truth and just go a little bit off of it and just twist it a little bit you know and that's when it becomes more dangerous when it's when it's when it's, when it's close yeah and one of the things i'll say later on you know is we use the same we have the same vocabulary but a different dictionary like that that's what makes it so so difficult right if you're talking to someone who is a buddhist and they're talking about all different ideas you can interact with but when you're talking about the same things you know it's, it can be challenging um 
Uh, they believe in a different gospel. It's a different hope, right? This idea of eternal progression. That's a, a phrase that is used a lot, right? Uh, it's a different gospel path. It's faith and obedience to earn salvation, right? Um, but we believe Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, sorry, 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. Works comes as a result of salvation. It's not the cause of it. Right? So yes, God does. Christians believe in justification by faith alone. Right? Um, but that does not mean that, that, that good works and, and labor have no part in the Christian life. It's just not the cause of salvation. It's the result. God transforms our life by his grace, and then we become obedient people. Um, so, yeah, we, we believe in a, in a different gospel. Um, I'm not going to go, and there's false prophets. Just They make prophecies just aren't true, you know, and there's a lot of scriptural warnings against false prophets. There's a ton of other things I could, I could I bring in here. I wanted to keep it kind of like, hey, the, the most important things. Not the same God, not the same Jesus, not the same gospel, um, not the same anthropology, um, so those are kind of the key things. There's, there's much else we could say, you know, we could, we could poke at and say like, well, baptism of the dead is weird and, you know, uh, holy, under, you know, temple undergarments are weird and I didn't even bring that up. But like, there's like weird things about Mormonism you could just like point out, but like the most fundamental things we disagree with. Um, so um, in my last like 10 minutes, uh, I'd like to talk about how, some, some things to keep in mind as you, as you are reaching out with Mormons to the gospel, uh, with the gospel in some sense, you know, the, the same things hold true when you're reaching out to anybody, your neighbor, your coworker, your atheist. You know, listen to Stepping Stones, and you'll get plenty of <laughs> the podcast. You'll get plenty of help with that. <clears throat> um, what do I have here? So um, so you have a lot of things in your notes here. Um, so, so I found this helpful article um, from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, just some considerations to think about. When you're inter- interacting with a Mormon, understand that Mormonism is much more then a sociolo- it's, much, it's as much or more a sociological construct as it is a religious system. Once again, like if you ask somebody who's a Muslim to come to Christ, you're not just asking them to change their religion. It is a major life change, right? That can, that can cost them dearly, right? And not like in Islam, it might cost them their life, you know, but like if you, Mormons have a very big network, right? Especially in Salt Lake and places like that. Um, where Mormons employ one another, and there's just a lot of input into people's businesses. I was just talking to um, Aaron Heindahl, who lived in, where did he live before here? Idaho. Idaho, which is a very, very densely Mormon area. And he talked about how, like, there's a whole lot of Mormons they interacted with, and he said, like, man, the Mormon church had, like, a stranglehold in that community, and, like, you couldn't open a business if you weren't a Mormon, like, because the way they brought up properties and the way they, you know, it was just really, really... Interesting. So, like, yeah, if someone was a Mormon, they come to come and they leave the Mormon church. You know, it's hard to do. They put it that way. You, you think it's hard to unsubscribe from certain emails? This is much worse. Um, no, but generally, they, they they could lose family, friends, employment opportunities, an entire way of life. So it's not just like, oh, I used to go to the Methodist church, but now I come to Living Hope. It's 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 not like that. So another consideration is just to really major on the majors when you're talking with them. That I, I try to do that today, like. It's very easy to say, well, I, I saw, you know, I saw Sister Wives on TLC, you know, wherever that show was, you know, and like, it's easy to hop in on that, or Baptism of the Dead, or, or Joseph Smith's Seer Stone, it's easy to like, poke at like the odd things, 
you know, but the four most significant doctrines are God, Christ, salvation, and scripture. Like if you're going to talk to a Mormon, just major on the majors, right? It's, I mean, um, these four doctrines plainly illustrate that the two groups do not hold the same worldview or fundamentally different. <clears throat> um, number three, keep two specific Latter-day Saint beliefs in mind to, or if you want to focus on two things. Uh, and one is the necessity of modern-day temples and the other is prophets, the necessity of those things for salvation, right? We, as Christians, you know, we believe that Christ is sufficient, you know, that we don't, um, I, I love that we took the Lord's Supper today, right? And that's something we believe is a church ordinance and we have beliefs about that. Um, believe that you belong to the church through faith in Christ, but you don't, but in, in the Mormon church, you have to go through the church in order to receive salvation. They dispense it, they can withhold, they can keep it. Um, and that is, but particularly the temples, right? Like, you can not behave, you can do poorly, you can't, you know, you drink things you shouldn't drink and do things you shouldn't do and then you don't get a temple recommend and then you can't go to the temple and they can keep you out of heaven, you know, so it's, you know, there's just different belief in, in that and, and also prophets. We believe Christ is the only mediator between humanity and God and Christ is the final prophet, priest, and king. So we just believe in the sufficient, finished work of Christ. We need, we need to hammer on that. There was a guy named uh, Micah Wilder. He converted. He has a really interesting book, uh, and the title of it is Passport to Heaven. I'd recommend it. You know, he, uh, he was on a Mormon mission and, and when he came to Christ. <laughs> and so he talks about that. And uh, his, I think his, his mom also wrote a book called Unveiling Grace, and she was a professor, I believe, at BYU. And, uh, and he converted from Mormonism to Christianity, which I'm going to say is actually kind of rare. Like it seems like there's a lot of Mormons. If they leave, if they if they believe Mormonism is false, they go into like nothing, to atheism, to maybe a theistic belief, but that is a hard turn. And so he so uh, he gave some. Uh, I think I included in there in your in your packet. I'll just roll through some of these pretty quickly, but just some things to think through when you're interacting with Morgan more, with Mormons. Of course, pray, but avoid contention. I mean, uh, I know apart from. I know where Jacob went. <laughs> you know, he, he mentioned he had uh, some some difficult uh, conversations online. But um, generally, Mormons avoid contention. They see it as something of the devil. Um, so avoid contentious topics, just remaining gentle and calm. I think that you can find a lot of, even videos online of people doing it poorly, but you can find some good ones too of Christians like interacting outside the temple. And it's just very gentle conversations. You can You can have that. It's not argumentative. Showing genuine interest in them as people. We're talking about them right now as a as a as a demographic, as a religious group, right? But just like any other group, like these are individual people that come from different places, you know. And uh, I can tell you what the Mormon Church teaches, but I can't teach, tell you what every single Mormon believes or understands or has even heard of. Some of the stuff I shared tonight, some of them would be like, ah, I have never heard that before, and you know. And and so, so it's it's very difficult to say like, well, I read this article or I saw this thing, and you believe this. Well, you don't know that they believe that, you know. I can only tell you what I. The church has been taught. So if you're, so love them, you know, I, I, please, you know, don't just avoid them, ignore them, certainly don't hate them, you know. Um, we want to engage them with love. We want to earnestly desire their salvation, just like with anyone, right? And that can be hard because it's like, man, you're already a good person. You're all really, really, you're nicer than some of the people living hope. You're, <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. and it can, we can easily get into that thought where it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're doing okay. I can just kind of, I'll, I'll move on to somebody else. Man, I really love them, earnestly desire their salvation. Um, 
you know, let the word offend, not our actions, right? Often, it, like I said, you know, we're, it's easy to attack the weird or novel doctrines like polygamy and other things like that. But, you know, are you, are you just going to, like, try to score points if you're talking to them, if they come to your door and say, like, you know, and say, well, this is weird. And that's, you know, are you really going to try to engage them and, you know, let the word of God be what offends? Be gentle and respectful. I kind of mentioned that already. This is an interesting one. Seeing LDS as victims, not enemies. This is an interesting idea that he had. Like, in some sense, I think, I think it is helpful. Like, there, there are times when somebody is an opponent, certainly. Like, they're opposing the gospel. They're an antichrist, right? You, but there are times you, I think we, we need to talk with people and saying, like, hey, you are held captive by the devil. If you're not in, if you're not in Christ, like, you are, you are held captive by a false religion that cannot save that is making you work like a dog for a salvation that's not real, that will never be realized. And I think that should, you know, it should create a sense of, you know, uh, uh, seeing them as, you know, they are held captive by behind enemy lines, and so we need to rescue them, not own them with arguments, right? He mentions number eight, to focus on Mormon stress points, meaning like, you know, uh, when you're talking to, to, to a Mormon, like he mentioned that like as a former Mormon, he was saying that there's a lot of uncertainty about forgiveness in their religion. That like any works religion, right? Like one, one of the points you could, you know, is there's not a lot of certainty that they're going to achieve the celestial kingdom or that their sins are actually forgiven or that they're doing enough good because the list of gospel duties that they have, you know, gospel ordinances, got all those things, that list gets pretty long and hard to do. There's not a lot of assurance. And also, you know, finding out what that individual is struggling with. Number nine, he says, make sure you speak the Mormon language. That's, I think if you know a lot about Mormonism, you can kind of get into that. That's more maybe a high level. But just, I think it is important when you're talking to them when they say, like, I believe the atonement of Jesus Christ. You just may want to ask, like, what do you mean by that? I would encourage you if if a Mormon, if, if they start speaking about, you know, certain terms, you know, like, you know, we need to return to Heavenly Father, you know, or, you know, or be saved. What do you mean by saved? Like, what, what do you mean by return to Heavenly Father? What do you mean by return? Like, just, just at, like just find, ask genuine questions, right? Um, to make sure that you're kind of on the same page and you can draw distinctions. Well, I, I believe differently than that. Number 10, he says, witness to Christ rather than debate Mormonism. And he has this thing, this idea that, you know, a person just leaving Mormonism doesn't save them. Just like if you convince an atheist to become a theist, they're not saved yet right? That's not a big win. Now they're just an unbeliever who believes in a God he doesn't submit to, you know, like, you know, and a lot of Mormons, it seems like once they, once they, they're convinced that Mormonism is false because it's so close to Christianity in certain ways. Well, I just, they don't want anything to do with any of it, right? They feel like they've been lied to and betrayed and, you know, so many Mormons who leave Mormonism do so for atheism and just go on message boards. Actually, don't go on message boards. But if you do, you'll see there's a lot of bitterness and frustration. And So number 11, listen to them talk about faith. Like I mentioned earlier, don't presume that all Mormons know or understand or believe standard Mormon doctrine. Do not assume that Mormon missionaries are experts. Like I actually, By the way, I should, if you want to, I can send you all a copy of PDF of the Mormon Missionary Handbook. It's like... A, I found it. It's like 150 pages or something, but like it explains a lot of stuff. And I felt like, honestly, that was like the clearest doctrinal statement I could find. It's like, what are they telling the missionaries to say? That's the best thing I, I found. So I can send you that if you like it. Um, but, you know, there's things that they may not know yet. These, they're 19-year-olds, many of them. You know, they're not experts. 
you know, and so um, listen to talk about the faith, listen to their story, hear about their faith so you can earn their respect and learn how to better respond. Um, lastly, use the Bible and ask a lot of questions. Man, I do believe that the word of God is powerful, quoting scripture. And the interesting thing is, is they profess to believe this is the Bible as well, right? They, they, they profess to believe in this book as well. So like that is right there, it seems like, hey, I don't believe in these other books, but let's talk about this book that we both believe in. I think you can come with that mindset. And if we believe the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, Michael Wilder, I believe that's the thing. He started reading the scripture and that starts convicting the Holy Spirit of God uses that. And then you start seeing like, hey, the Bible says this, but I'm believing this other thing instead. How, how do I reconcile that? You know, so letting, letting the word of God, you know, uh, be what quotes it. Once again, I'd recommend maybe the KJV. Jesus, you know, do you notice when he's interacting with people, he asks a lot of questions. I think that like, actually, I will confess to you, Mormons came to my door a little while ago and I was unprepared for it. And I feel like I didn't do a good job of talking with them, you know, and uh, because I, 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 maybe I'd been studying this stuff and my mind was just like, I didn't know where to go. And like, and I wish if I could do it again, which maybe they won't come back because they know I'm a pastor, but um, I would just like, hey guys, let's, let's just talk to tell me, tell me about yourself. You know, and, and just just begin the conversation that way. And I, there's some sample questions that we can ask, right? Ask about their spiritual background. What's it like to be a Mormon? Just tell me about yourself. What gets you excited about being a Mormon? What, what, what's, what's scary about being a Mormon, right? Um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you think Mormons are Christians or, 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 why, or why or why not? Why, and then you, why do you think that a lot of Christians don't think that Mormons are Christians? Like, there's just a lot. And I gave you some sample questions there that might be that are, Genuine questions. Don't ask them as got you questions, you know, but genuinely. Um, why do you believe the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ? How can a person know for sure he or she is going to heaven? Um, so I think there's some things that you can, you can ask. Um, I'm a little past time, so I wanted to kind of close with this. Um, my hope tonight is that like that Mormonism for many of you is something that's like, yeah, there's a Mormon ward building over there. And it, you know, maybe you know a lot about Mormons, maybe you don't, but you know, they are in our community. It's a very American religion. It has, I mean, a Mormon ran for president not too many years ago. Like there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, it, it's out there. And so I wanted to kind of equip you to understand a little bit more about what this church is like. Um, at the same time, I think sometimes it's, I like comparing other faiths or other religions to true biblical doctrine, because then you can see the stark differences more clearly. And hopefully, you appreciate the, the true gospel a little bit more, right? But I also hope this stokes a little bit of your heart to reach LDS people. And some of you are going to be like, yeah, I have, a, I have a heart for the LDS people. Some of you, maybe not as much, you know, but I think sometimes God lays on our heart a specific people group, you know, that you have that, like, man, I really want to reach this people. So maybe for some of you, that's it tonight, you know, that, that God has, has put a desire in your heart and he's preparing you for when a Mormon shows up at Young Life or when a Mormon shows up uh, at your door or you work next to one and, you know, hopefully you're a little more equipped um, to speak to them and pray for them.